Thank you. Romans chapter 3, we left off here in, in the, this discussion about the depravity of man and God's answer for that. And we're going to pick it up this morning in verse 21. And so let's read a few verses here in verse 21 through 26 to get started. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." We've been seeing in this, in this passage a lot of bad news, haven't we? And the bad news description of the condition of mankind in Romans 1, 2, and 3. We've seen that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that there's none righteous. And yet here we turn to the good news. We've been building to this moment where we see this interjection. But now, as God interjects into man's depravity, the provision of his righteousness. And that's good news. And this is a very important passage as it discusses that through this chapter into the next couple, the justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And it's very important because we want to know what the Bible teaches as the means of attaining righteousness or a right standing before God. Because there's a lot of opinions out there, a lot of ideas. I had a chance to share the gospel with someone recently, and one of his objections or questions was, well, there's so many differences of opinions out there. Yet the Bible says, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. And the thing that must persuade us is the word of God. What does God say? That's why we study the Bible. That's why we turn to the Bible. What does God say on this, on this issue? Because it doesn't matter what I think, what, are, what you think, what anybody else thinks. What matters is what God thinks, what God says. And that's wonderful because God has made it clear. And he's gonna, he, he is going to spend, as much time as he spent in the depravity of man, he's going to spend in the next couple of chapters on discussing the righteousness of God provided for man in Christ. And that's why he says in verse 29, but now, when we've been talking about man's unrighteousness, but now the righteousness of God is, apart from the law, is revealed. What is the righteousness of God? Well, we could look back to before the fall, before man fell into sin, back in the garden, Adam and Eve lived in what we could call perfect rightness before God, righteousness, rightness. They were, they were enjoying the holiness of God in their life, in their environment, and in their fellowship with him. There was no sin that interrupted their relationship with God and therefore it really not, didn't interrupt their experience, their relationship with others, their daily experiences. Sin and the curse did not affect them. But because of disobedience and rebellion, man became a sinner. And we've been reading about that in the last couple of chapters. He became unrighteous, as the Bible describes, describes him. Ungodly, the Bible describes, describes him. And that should not be a shocker, though the description here might be thorough, but just open our eyes and look around us. We see the depravity of man expressed everywhere we look in the ungodliness and the darkness around us. And in that condition, man became unclean and unfit for heaven. That's the point of this. That's why God points it out. He said, because there is no unrighteousness in heaven, we became unfit for heaven. Because heaven is a place of perfect righteousness. God's presence is a place of holiness. And we need to... to have that kind of righteousness to enjoy that presence. As many have, as many have said before me, if, if God allowed uncleansed sinners into heaven, it will no longer be heaven. 
It would not, no longer be a place of righteousness and holiness and purity and light. And so now God introduces then to us a provision of righteousness. The righteousness which is set in contrast to the unrighteousness of mankind here. It's a righteousness in which we stand. It's a righteousness which God seeks us to live in our daily lives. It's a righteousness we'll enjoy forever in heaven apart from the, the, the effects, the control, the influence, and the curse of sin. Now he makes a point there when he introduces the righteousness of God. He says, first of all, it's apart from the law. Now that might reach back to his discussion on the Jews. Remember the last of the three classes of sinners we looked at was the religious Jew. And the religious Jew believed that they could keep the Ten Commandments or, or be circumcised in order to enter the family of God. That was their religious philosophy. That was their belief. And so once again, he returns to that discussion and tells us that this righteousness, first of all, is apart from the law. It's apart from law keeping, as we see in this section. Let's go ahead and go back to verse 10 and, and read through verse 20 here as we come, or verse 9, excuse me, as we read the conclusion after the Bible discusses the immoral man, the moral man, and the religious man, he says in verse 9, what then are we better than they? We Jews, we religious folks, are we better than, than the rest of the ungodly? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles that we're all under sin, as it is written. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none, zero, zilch, who does good, no, not one. And then he describes them once again. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, once again, he brings a summary, which concludes with maybe the, 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 the key verse in this verse 18. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the reason for all these things. In the, in the ungodly, unsaved, unregenerate man, there is not the awesome respect that God deserves. His word, his ways, and his will in their lives. And so he goes on then in verse 19, in light of the fact that Man is so ungodly, is so depraved, so separate from God. He says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world might become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so he addresses directly the mantra of the religious Jew. The Ten Commandments, the keeping the law, being circumcised. And that law represents any system of good works that man has ever invented. It, 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 God is saying here that we are not saved by those laws, those rules, those standards which religion and, and mankind impose on us. And it says here that what the law says, it says to those who are under the law. That means whatever law you put yourself under. And there's a lot of formulas out there. And I agree with this fellow I talked with recently. There's a lot of approaches to God, but they have one thing in common. Law-keeping, rule-keeping, good works, the best man could do. And he says to those who under the law, under the, the law specifically, what happens is that every mouth might be stopped. If you really faced up to the Ten Commandments, they declare us guilty. Because who keeps them? No one keeps them. It, it, it stops our mouth. It stops our bragamony and turns it instead to a testimony because only Jesus saves. Every mouth becomes stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. That's what the law did to us. The law was God's righteous, holy standard. God set it before mankind. 
not as a means of getting to heaven, but instead to reveal to mankind his sinfulness, his need. And verse 20 says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. No flesh shall be justified or declared right in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The problem was when God gave the Ten Commandments that eventually the Jews turned it into a religious system or a means of getting to heaven. Never God's intention, but that's what Judaism came to represent. Through the Ten Commandments, through circumcision, a person could be enter the family of God. And God never designed that. That's man's twisted abuse of God's word. And so here in verse 21, it says the righteousness of God is apart from the law. Apart from the law means man seeks to establish his own righteousness. That's what people do. People put confidence in their goodness, their morality, their religious works, and say, "This, you know, this, you know, I mean, I'm such a good person. I've got a good chance as the next guy." And that's a confidence in self-righteousness, in our own righteousness, and establishing our own way to get to heaven. And the Bible says, "You know what? It's apart from that. God's righteousness is apart from your best efforts." It's a righteousness God has provided apart from that, first of all. Galatians 2.16 says this, in a similar discussion about the means of righteousness, it says this, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. I mean, you know, when you look in the scriptures, you've got to think, how many times does God have to say it? To make it perfectly clear. This is not just some remote, obscure verse that God dropped in the scripture and somebody dug out and wants to support, you know, salvation freely by his grace. God repeats it over and over again. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. I think God spent so much time here, both on the depravity of man and justification by faith in these first five chapters, because he wants to make it perfectly clear, because man continually perverts God's plan for salvation. And God wants to make it perfectly clear to us that salvation is apart from our works. And he's going to go on to discuss this. And he said, next thing he says is that it's, first thing he says is that it's now revealed. It's revealed in the person and work of Christ. And secondly, it is being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now this is good because he goes back to the Bible, doesn't he? Here the writer is going back to the Bible. He's going back to the Old Testament. The law and the prophets were a description of the Old Testament, wasn't it? The law and the prophets was a reference to the, the scriptures. And in the Old Testament, we find Jesus prophesied. Isaiah 42, for example, one among many, says this. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. He's talking about the Messiah, Jesus as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house, and so on. You think of passages like Isaiah 53, which in detail describes the agony of the cross as God laid on him the iniquity of us all. We find prophecy after prophecy. We also find the witness of the law and the prophets in, in the sense of type or picture book illustration. All those lambs that were, that were slain and the bulls and animals that were slain were meant to teach a lesson, to point forward. And, you know, and, and the New Testament ties it together when, when John the Baptist saw the Lord Jesus says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now why in the world would he use a lamb if he wasn't making a connection to the Old Testament? Why else would you call him the Lamb? Apart from that, 
years and years and hundreds of years of, of, of animal sacrifices that were meant to picture the necessity for substitution and redemption that that pictured. And so the law and the prophets witness to the coming Messiah. And so the righteousness of God is, first of all, witnessed by the law and the prophets. In verse 22, he repeats, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's apart from the law, but it's through Jesus Christ. It's righteousness that is provided by another through the gift of his son. And see, we recognize that when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, he paid for our sin to secure forgiveness. He rose again victorious to secure our eternal life. But along with that forgiveness, God gives righteousness as a gift. He attributes it to us. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. He became righteousness for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him who knew no sin, that is, God made the Son, who knew no sin, Jesus was perfect, to be sin for us. He became sin for us on the cross, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I like the verses in Ephesians chapter 1, verse, verse 4, where it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, I don't know any Christians that is, that is completely holy and without blame. Look close enough and you don't, you're going to find plenty of blame, aren't you? This is our standing. This is how we stand before Christ, because we stand before him in Christ. Verse 6 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. You see, our, our acceptance before God is not in our righteousness. It's in, not in ourselves. It is in the beloved one. And therefore, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's replacing our faith in, in Christ. It's the only condition. And it's given, verse 22, to all and on all who believe. It's given to all and on all who believe. You see, everyone is equally needy, and everyone, the gift of salvation is equally available. And he gives it to all. In this context, it's Jew and Gentile, isn't it, he's referring to. But includes whosoever will may come. All means all. God is, is ready to give anyone who would turn to him in faith the gift of forgiveness and the gift of righteousness. So it's to all and upon all. It's upon all. All who believe, all believe God puts upon them the righteousness of Christ. You know, and if you're a believer here this morning, that's how God sees us. You know, we often think God sees us, you know, in, in, our, in our flesh, which is kind of sometimes disobedient, sometimes a rascal. And God sees us, you know, in all of our failures and flaws. But God sees us first in Christ. We're his children. And maybe it's pictured by the love of a parent for the child, though you know your child's you know, tendencies and, and their quirks and, and their rebellions, but you see them as loved by a parent, by yourself, because they belong to you. They're yours. Well, how much greater love has a father for us, the Bible says. And he sees us in Christ, standing righteous before him. And he goes on to say, it's through to all and on all who believe. He repeats this idea of faith. And he begins in this scriptures to stress the idea that the way we get, receive righteousness 
It's through faith. It's by believing in Jesus Christ. It's simply, it's the only condition. And here he uses in the same verse the concept of faith in Jesus Christ and believing in Jesus Christ. Synonyms, one of the same things, two different ways to describe it. And the reason those terms are used is because they exclude works, by the way. Because faith is not a work. Some want to think it's a work, but it's not a work because there's no value in faith. Faith isn't something you do. It's not something you generate to get some benefit out of. Faith is a response. It's a response to the invitation of God to trust Jesus and to, and to receive the free gift of eternal life. It's trusting in the work of another. Turn with me over to look at Romans 4. Maybe you're on that same page. Let's look at verse 5. Look at the contrast. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. As you see, this discussion goes on. Not him who does not work who gives up the works approach to getting to heaven, but instead believes. And notice the contrast, working versus believing. Believing is not a work, it's a response. It's to him who believes. His faith is accounted for, it's credited to him for righteousness. Jump ahead to verse 16, where it says, Therefore it, salvation, justification we're talking about here, is of faith that it might be according to grace or the promise might be sure. Notice these, these concepts, these biblical dynamics, teachings go together. Faith and grace and assurance. If grace is God offering you justification freely, undeservedly, unearned, then faith is the only hand that can receive it because it's non-meritorious. All the value is in its object. That's why, by the way, it's so important for us to understand the object. What Christ did for us on the cross, what he accomplished for us, so our faith is in him, in his work, not in ours. There's no value in the faith. The value is in the object, is it not? And grace describes the love of God as absolutely free in the scriptures, completely undeserved. And, you know, um, William Newell describes grace as uncaused in the recipient. I like that description. There's nothing in us that caused God to say, you know, you're such a nice guy. I just gotta, I just, I'm just going to save you. No, grace is something that's initiated from the heart of God, the love of God. It's un completely undeserved. And, 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 and faith is the only, only way we can respond to that grace. And that way, faith respects grace because faith, grace, faith is not a work, and grace is providing for us all that we need in Christ. He goes on here in chapter 3 then, that it's to all and on all. It's all-inclusive who believe, for there's no difference. He carries on that theme. It's available to all. And this was maybe written to address the 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 Jewish believers of the day, because the Jews in their abuse and misuse of the Old Testament law, Judaism, made the Jews feel they were better than the average bear. There was a bias, wasn't there? There was a prejudice. They thought the Gentiles were dogs. They were unclean. They were second-class citizens, and they were better. And so when they got saved, they just thought they were better Christians. And, and the Bible's making it perfectly clear that salvation is available to all equally, all who believe, because... All have sinned in the next verse. For all have sinned. We're all the same. And that includes the immoral man, the moral man, the religious man, and here's the conclusion. We're all the same. We've all sinned. We've sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't care how moral you are, how religious you are, you've come short of God's perfect standard of holiness. And therefore, we're all equally needy. And that's to salvation, it is equally available. 
you know, man is, is specializes in comparing ourselves with ourselves. So the Bible says it's not wise, but we think we're more religious than the average guy, don't we? We think we're better. And yet this idea of falling short was uh, illustrated, Romans 3.23, by an organization called Eventel this way. He said, if you were to throw a rock at the moon, you'd never reach it. Your rock might go farther than mine, and maybe others that go closer than others, but there's absolutely no way you're going to throw a rock and hit the moon. Not in your wildest dreams, are you? And in that way, we all fall short. We all fall short. Some might be morally, religiously better than others as we compare man with man, but God says, you know, you have the same problem. You're still short of the glory of God. You're still a sinner. You still have sin that needs to be, be, to be dealt with, and it was dealt with at the cross, and that's why God really says, quit throwing rocks. Really is what he's saying. Quit trying to get through it on your own. Because the next verse, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And you and I, when we read that verse, you jump up, click our heels, belly bump, and say, Yahoo! It's free. It's free. And we like free, but picking up a bike, a free bike on the side of the road, which I may have done a time or two, even a free boat, which ended up going to the dump, it doesn't compare to eternal life. To being justified, which means to be declared right. We're free. It's a free gift that God gives us. So the word justified means to be declared righteous. And it's because man of the raw is guilty before God. He is unrighteous because of sin. We've seen that clearly. In Christ, we can be declared right. We we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Not because of us, but because in Christ. Now, justification is somewhat of a legal term, isn't it? And it involves a debt having been paid. In John 19.30, Jesus uttered these words. He said, it is finished, which could mean paid in full. He paid our debt, our obligation before the holiness of God. The penalty that we deserved, which was eternal separation from God in the lake of fire, Jesus paid on the cross. It is finished, paid in full. It's done. It's settled. The debt is settled. And that's no different than, you know, going down to pay off your mortgage to your lender and finding out someone else has paid it. You know, that'd be Yahoo. Though you might not believe it. You might, not, you might return a few times to make sure it's paid for. Even if they handed you your deed, paid in full, stamped all over it, you might think, oh, that can't be. Who wouldn't wear it? I, mean, I, have, I owe this much money. Who in the world would do that for me? It would be kind of nice if someone would do that for us. But, <laughs> but Jesus did. That's the point. Stamp that, that, that guilty verdict paid in full. You know, if you were busted for some crime and had to go to court and whether you pled guilty or declared guilty by the court, it doesn't matter if you're guilty, you're guilty. And you might then be faced and prepared to pay the fine or do the time. And when the judge says, okay, you're free to go, you might wonder what's going on. No, I got I to gotta pay for this. And then you find out another has paid the fine and did the time, and that's what Jesus did. Hebrews 10, he offered one sacrifice for sins forever. He paid the debt. That's the point of justification. The debt has been paid. So on that basis, God can, in respect to his holiness, legally, justly, declare you right. He can justify you. Not because he's a kind old grandfather and says, oh, that's okay, I'll just sweep it under the carpet. No, because the penalty's actually been paid. That debt has been, been settled. 
Acts 13, 38 and 39 says this, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Good works will never accomplish that. Now, good is always good, but good works is not going to pay the sin debt that we owe. The whole idea of the scales of balance that thinks if your good works outweigh your bad works misses the whole point. That's not the point. The point is that sin requires a penalty. There's a debt on the books that needs to be paid, and Jesus paid it all, we sing. And therefore, we can enter the benefits of that freely in him. Freely by his grace. It's a gift. In fact, some versions translate verse 24 as a gift. It's given. Or one dictionary defines this concept of freely by his grace without any cost. It reminds you of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where God once again repeats himself, where he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's by grace, undeserved, it's through faith, the only means by which we can respond to a free gift. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So even in these verses, we see these repeated, repeatedly stated that it's not of ourselves. It's a free gift provided in grace because Jesus paid it all. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You know, in reality, we have to be careful as we approach salvation because, once again, man has a lot of wild ideas, ideas that stray from the scriptures. And even sometimes among Christendom, or so-called Christendom, whichever it may be, we find works infiltrating the concept of grace. Man inevitably likes to mix the two because in some way we want to do our part, earn our share, you know, feed our pride, whatever you want, however you want to describe it, and that works, works to, to salvation. And you have to be careful that you don't, we don't allow the gospel message to be polluted by grace because of Romans 11, 6 says it's either by grace or it's by works. If it's by one, it can't be the other. If it's the other, it can't be the one. I'm paraphrasing slightly. But it's either or. They're, they're diametrically opposed concepts. And therefore, we cannot mix them. And I mention this because I think throughout the years, we mix them. In fact, the book of Galatians, back in Paul's days, they mixed them. Galatians 2.21, Paul said this, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. And what, 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 and what the Galatian church was facing was, was religious folks who were coming along saying, yeah, you can have your faith in Jesus, but you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law, too. They're mixing the two. And Paul says, no, that's setting aside the grace of God because grace means absolutely free. It does not mean Christ plus me. It means it's absolutely free. And if righteousness could come through keeping the law, then why should Christ come? If you and I could attain righteousness by doing the best we can, why should God send his only son to bear our hell on the cross? He died for nothing if we could earn it on our own. It's one or the other. It's perfectly clear. And we have to be careful not to allow that to, to enter our gospel message. And one of the ways that happens in Christianity is by the misuse and abuse and misunderstanding of the term repentance. Now, the word repentance in the scriptures and the dictionary simply means a change of mind. That's its basic core definition. And some would add it's a change of mind resulting in a change of direction, but the core thing, it's, it's, when the Bible says to repent, is a change of mind about yourself, your sin, about Jesus in heaven, 
about the gift of eternal life, but it does not mean turning from your sin. That's where the abuse comes in. Because when you ask someone to turn from their sin and trust Christ, you just ask them to do something. Now it's me giving up all this bad stuff in my life and trusting Christ in order to go to heaven. Yes, Christ wants to save me from that bad stuff, but before I can be helped, I have to become his child. And that, that, that approach incorporates works into salvation. Be careful of that. Because really the problem is when we approach a sinner, and when they come, maybe they come to you and want to hear about salvation. The problem is they can't beat this stuff. That's the problem in the first place. I don't, I don't have the power to overcome that. Because that power is found in the person of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit. The power of God to salvation is expressed in our lives. As we grow in grace, we begin to overcome those things that haunt our lives. But the Bible never asks us to give them up to get saved. Yes, it's simply to trust Christ. That's what free means. Apart from works. That's what that means. And so we have to be careful. On the other side of that coin of repentance, which means simply to change your mind, are those who preach what is titled a lordship approach which they say requires a lifelong commitment, involves committing your life to God and submitting to him as Lord. And while those things are biblical concepts, they are, once again, for the child of God. Don't put the cart before the horse. As children, that's what we're doing today. We're learning how to enjoy the Lordship of Christ in our lives as his children. But it was not a requirement to get saved. It's the enjoyment after we get saved. And when you ask someone to commit themselves wholly to the Lordship of Christ to get saved, you just added works to the gospel, made it complicated, made it not free, completely violating what we've been studying here, this short, simple passage about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. There's one basis of justification, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it has been provided freely. As we go on here in this passage, it says we're justified freely by his grace, his undeserved and unearned grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's simple, isn't it? Whom, verse 25, as he explains it, God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation. He mentions two things here in regards to the provision of the cross. He mentions redemption. It's through redemption that is in Christ Jesus and through propitiation. Big, big 25 cent words, aren't they? Redemption simply means the purchase by paying a price. You know, anybody who shops, you understand what that means. It's the purchase by paying a price. The purchase was you and I and our eternal salvation and forgiveness, our rescue. The price was his blood. He purchased our rescue. So he introduces these terms into this, into this, you know, this context of grace, salvation by faith alone, through grace alone and Christ alone. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. And I'll pause there. You were not redeemed by giving money. That's what it's saying. Your, this aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers was a religious tradition. And wherever you go, religious tradition teaches that, you know, giving money is a part of our good works program to get to heaven. I remember when I was a Young person, before I knew Christ as Savior, I went to what was called Christian Relief Time classes, which really got me out of school for a couple hours a week, and I was glad to go. Got me out of school, got to go to the church. And this church we went to was a kind of a, a rich church, new church, and, and they had a fun drive going on, and in the big foyer they had, big glass windows and all that, they had a big thermometer like they often do with a fun drive. But along with the amounts they, they, the amount they had reached, they had listed their top, I don't know, five givers, you know, the amounts they had given. 
And we, every week we'd race in that foyer to see who, was, who, got, who won this week. That's how it was. Doctor this, lawyer that, this person. Next week we come back, who's winning this week? The, 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 the giving race. That's our religious, we just, that's kind of inbuilt into us naturally. But God says it's not that way. You're not redeemed with corruptible things like money, like silver or gold. But, in the last half of the verse says, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Without blemish and spot fulfills the Old Testament type of a perfectly spotless lamb, the innocent dying for the guilty. Jesus was that lamb, and we were purchased by his blood. And so we're redeemed through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. His blood was the cost. You know, when we take communion, we, we celebrate the, the remembrance of Christ as we participate in the, in the cup which represents his blood was shed for me. He gave his life for me. He died my death on the cross in order to purchase my salvation. The second term here then, here is in verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation has to do with God's satisfaction. Sometimes we define it as satisfaction or satisfying the just requirements of God's holiness before, towards a sinner. The word really means, it's, it's, a, it's a word that refers to the mercy seat, which again was a tieback to the Old Testament law and prophets. In the Old Testament, in the innermost court of God, where the high priest went once a year, according to God's instructions, he went in once a year and, and sprinkled the blood of a lamb on what was called the mercy seat, which overlaid the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place of, and sometimes it's called the seat of propitiation, the seat of satisfaction. It was a mercy seat. And once a year when the, when the high priest would go in and offer that blood, it was for an atonement, a covering of sin for another year. They would do that year after year. On the Day of Atonement, they would go in and offer this offering, and it covered it. It satisfied God's wrath towards sin to, for another year. And here, that pictures Jesus. God set forth him as a mercy seat by his blood. That's the concept here. He was that lamb whose blood was shed in order to secure for forgiveness for our sins. Hebrews 2.17 says this, Therefore in all things he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, he had to become a man, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And later in Hebrews it tells us that he did this once for all. And that's the beauty of the death of Christ because Hebrews 10, 8, 9, and 10 tell us that the high priest would go in year after year after year re, never eliminating the remembrance of sin. But this man after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down. Why? Because it is finished. Paid in full. It's complete. He fulfilled the picture, the type, and it goes on to tell us in that portion that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. They were a covering. But Jesus provided that forgiveness once and for all and forever. And so Jesus was our redemption. He, he paid the price. He was our propitiation. He satisfied the just holiness of God by paying the penalty for our sin. It goes on in verse 25 to say, to demonstrate his righteousness. This is God's righteousness. In his, in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate his righteousness it means that, that God is showing that even though the blood of bulls and goats never fully satisfied God's wrath and fulfilled God's righteousness. Jesus did. The sins that were passed were simply those Old Testament sins that were covered because the Old Testament offerings were atonements, were coverings, temporary coverings. Jesus' atonement was propitiation, was a forgiveness 
He removed the debt of sin in our lives. And God's righteousness extends back to that time. Extends back to the Old Testament saints. He passed over those sins. He forbear those sins. One of the attributes of God is forbearance, by the way. In Old Testament, he, for, he, he put up with the Israelites and all their shenanigans because once a year they honor the Day of Atonement. You know, God someday would bring the Messiah, the Savior, who would remove sin once and for all and forever. But he forbears us too, doesn't he, in our daily lives. He puts up with us. He has an objective with us as children. He wants us to teach us to act like his children. And that takes a lot of forbearance, doesn't it? God has forbearance often puts up with us. You wonder why he does, but he does because of his love and grace. So he's demonstrating at the present time his righteousness. We find this idea of the present time. Verse 21 said, but, but now, verse 26, the present time, he demonstrates. The cross of Christ kind of brought it all together. And maybe some of the Old Testament saints didn't, re didn't really know for sure how God, how God was going to fulfill the prophecies, how fulfill the type, the picture of the Old Testament tabernacle system. But now it's made sense to them. Now it came together. And God is showing how he is providing righteousness for man apart from himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why it goes on in verse 26 to say that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He might be just. He is a just and holy God. That means the penalty had to be paid and it was paid. God's justice was satisfied at the cross. Some say when God raised Christ from the dead. When he accepted him to ascend into heaven and sit at his throne, it was a mark of acceptance. He was satisfied. His justice was satisfied. And Jesus himself said before he faced the cross, you know, I'm, I've accomplished what you sent me to do in anticipation of the cross. So God satisfied his just demands in giving his son for you and I. But he's also the justifier. Not only is the just one, the penalty was paid, same time, he was the one who provided the penalty. He paid the penalty. He's the justifier. He is the one who provided self-righteousness for us through Jesus Christ. And that's why he breaks this point again of the one who has faith in Jesus. We see that condition threaded throughout this portion, don't we? Much of these next couple of chapters are going to discuss and expand on justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Over in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, God has done it all, provided it all, and if that's the case, faith is the only response. And I think that's what God is going to make clear to us in this passage. So we understand the freeness of salvation, the nature of grace that God has provided for us simply because of his love for us. And all he asks of us is our trust, a response of faith, a trust in what Christ has done and that's why he leads into the next portion, which we'll say for next time, where's boasting then? We see this idea of boasting threaded throughout this passage. What does that leave for man to boast about? Nothing. If Jesus paid it all, if you go to pay your debt, but Jesus paid it all, what does that leave for us to boast about? Nothing. And most of us don't boast in nothing. Do we? Not normally. We don't boast in nothing. I mean, I did nothing. Now, maybe some people appreciate a lazy day or lazy. Well, you get the point. Where's boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. Works would mean I could boast. No, but by the law of faith. The law of faith excludes any boasting, any confidence in ourselves. And so we rejoice together in Jesus Christ today. And Galatians 6.14 says this, But God forbid that I should boast, 
except at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We can be so thankful today that we're the benefit of such an amazing gift of grace. Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity that you seek to bring to us in this passage. The clarity of the way we attain righteousness, the way we are fit for heaven, the way we are forgiven and redeemed and saved, the way we're declared right. It's because Jesus paid it all. And on that basis, Father, you forgive us, cleanse us, and clothe us with his righteousness. Thank you, Father, that we have a glorious heaven to look forward to because of the cleansing we find in Christ. We have a glorious heaven to look forward to because you tell us that we're going to be discovering the riches of your grace and your kindness to us through Jesus Christ for, for millenniums to come. So, Father, thank you for that free gift. May each one here, Father, have placed their faith in Jesus alone as their Savior from sin and have that issue settled, have that debt paid, have the relief of knowing their guilt is gone. And for those who are saved, Father, may we realize what a wonderful gift we have to share with the world around us. Give us love for others, concern for others, and boldness in our witness, we pray as well. And may Jesus receive the glory. In Jesus' name.